Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm Alexa Von Tobel, your host. And this week, I'm excited for you to meet Life Abraham, co-founder and co-CEO at Public.com, the popular investing platform that allows everyone to invest in stocks, ETF, crypto, and alternative assets like fine art and collectibles all in one place. Life co-founded Public in 2019 and has since raised over $300 million in funding and scaled to 3 million members. Prior to Public, Life was co-founder and CEO of Andco, which he grew to become the largest freelancing software company in the world. Andco was acquired by Fiverr in 2018. He also co-founded Pay with a tweet, a first-of-its-kind social payment system that was acquired by Hans Ventures in 2012. Previously, Life was a partner at the venture studio Prehype and has held senior roles in product and strategy at RGA and West, where he worked on product experience for companies like Google and Venmo. Life was named one of the top 10 minds in digital by Adweek, is a double Can Lions Grand Prix winner, and has won an MTVO Music Award. And with that, let's welcome my friend Life. Hi, Life. Excited to have you here today. First things first, what's public.com in your own words for everybody out there who maybe isn't already a user? So public, obviously an investing app. And so we really help people build a holistic portfolio between multiple asset classes. And so think of it as stocks, ETFs, crypto, uh, even alternatives you can invest in, for example, piece of art or a collection of rare sneakers. And now also, for example, treasuries, right? So US T-bills are cool again. And so you can invest in that on public as well. Let's go back to 2019, to the early days of standing up public. Talk us through how you and Yannick met And then what was the aha moment where you said, let's go build this new idea, this new version of a finance app? Yeah, so Yannick and I know each other for many years. We had the same mentor, a guy called Henrik Rodelin, who started BarkBox, this like subscription box for dog toys and so on that you might know. Yeah. And uh, he also had this incubator called Prehype. It was basically this like rundown office in the middle of Chinatown in New York. And that's really where we met. Um, That's many years ago. And then I sold my company, he sold his company, and we kind of came together, you know, figuring out what to do next. And that's kind of what public came out of. Basically, we saw these kind of like two barriers of why we saw most people not really actively being in the stock market um, or the markets in general. The one barrier was really the structural barrier of like at the time, the median, I think, you know, a savings account for, for a millennial was like two and a half grand. For most people, it was very, it was very hard to really build a proper portfolio if even a single share of a popular stock you know would take most of the savings off in that moment and then the second piece was really this like psychological barrier where people would just look at it and be like ah i just feel this like finance topic is not for me you know i can't really touch it i'm not really a finance person and so on and so the first one we really solved by uh, being the first to invent uh, uh, real-time fractional investing so the ability to basically purchase any stock for any amount of money and the second piece was really this notion of building a community around the around the stock market so that you could see other people like yourself being active in the markets. And by that, really just like spread some confidence that, you know, you could do it too. Talk a little bit about how you thought about building your user base and what worked for you, because getting to 3 million plus members pretty quickly is a very unusual thing to have happened. So t- let's talk through that. Very early on, we had this little mantra. We basically called you become who you acquire and so as we were also a community as well it was important that we were very mindful of 
who we're actually acquiring in the early days. So not just go after whatever you think the low-hanging fruits are, like get whatever user you can get, but actually being mindful on who do you acquire and who will be the first people on the app that start building the community, but also the first people that are the ones whose data you're you know, tracking, like they're from, from like a behavioral perspective to see what, like how they use the features, uh, the people that you get the feedback from and so on. And so because we had this notion of trying to build a mass consumer company in the space that was not necessarily focused on day traders or focused on you know, retirement or so on, but something that is really more broad market and therefore also just like growing the market with that as well. Therefore, we also just had this, uh, uh, like had the strategy to figure out a way to bring more people into the markets that you, you know, usually necessarily wouldn't expect there yet. So that's why very early on, we actually acquired a lot of users by, by having partnerships with existing other communities. And that's really what was building the first part of the, of the user base and therefore creating something that represents much more America, so to say, as a whole, than like a specific niche of people that were already active in the markets. You have really focused on forging that emotional relationship uh, with your fans. Talk a little bit about an activity or two that may be different than how other people think about building their user base, fan base. Tell us more about that. The goal should be to build a fan base, not just a user base. And from like a product perspective, you will obviously think a lot about retention, right? How long does a user stay with you? And if you think about retention, you can break it out into two different buckets. One bucket is this like functional retention of like the people stick with your product for the features it provides. But that is also something that's very easy to compete with, right? There's a new cool company coming up that just like does the same feature and a little bit simpler and suddenly people use that. The other retention is what we call emotional retention. And emotional retention is where people still use it for the features, of course, but ultimately they have an emotional connection with the company and that is often driven through some sort of value alignment. And that connection is just much harder to compete with. So as you build your company, we've always, or as we build our company, we've always kind of looked for moments where we can prove our values. And that really comes through in actions, right? We're famous for being, you know, maybe the only investing app in the country that doesn't participate in payment for auto flow. We've invented this thing called safety labels, where if a stock is very volatile or risky, we actually show you a little, you know, model where to like slide to confirm and that you understand the risks to then continue to actually trade the stock and so on. So a lot of things where, where we try to be on the side of the user and make them also feel and realize that, right? And that again, just like creates this value alignment. And so, but then also has the effect that you know, that you're basically giving people arguments that they can use to basically rally behind your company and kind of fight on your behalf. And so when you think of word of mouth, the one of like the, the word of mouth shouldn't just be, oh, you're using this other investing app, you know, I should, like, like I use public, it's a little simpler, it's nicer. But my reaction should be, whoa, 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 you should use public. Here's why. Bum, 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 bum. And these bullet points are often just things where you are actually standing behind it and that kind of like aligns with your values, right? And so it's this little bit this mindset of like users use you for your features and fans will like rally behind you as a company. You guys built the Black Swan playbook. You proactively outlined all the steps that you would take if a major external event happened. It allowed you to be very quick to respond. So first, where did the idea for the Black Swan playbook come up? Why did you decide to prepare that way? And tell us maybe another time or two where that has been incredibly valuable to you. Yeah, so in our business, obviously, because we're an investing app, we are very tied to market events. 
right? And so in our business, market events happen all the time. There can be small things, it can be an IPO, or it can be a stock split. It can be, but it, can, but it can also be large events like, you know, March 2020 circuit breaker hits because the market just drops drastically within a few days, you know, and so on. And so because in our business, we've always been kind of tied to these market events and these market events are often also moments for like large organic acquisition that just happens due to the events that kind of put us in the position to think about, let's be prepared when these things happen because we don't know when they will happen. You know, and therefore that's where this like mindset of this like black swan playbook kind of comes from. They can also be smaller things that don't have to be these like massive, you know, events necessarily. And so it's really for us a sense of trying to predict what type of black swan events could happen and then have some sort of preparation for that. A lot of that is often also as simple as like, as just like having like some sort of user communications prepped, right? Of like, how do we communicate? Which channels do we communicate? So you have all your stakeholders in the team kind of know what their role plays. Even if you don't know how to fill a certain uh, blank box yet in the plan, because the event might be something special that you haven't thought about, but at least you know, you know, the list of things that should happen if something happens. I want to go back to COVID. You know, you launched public in 2019 and then a huge portion of your growth happened during COVID. Talk us through what you learned and walk us through what that felt like. We got these emails from the board and investors that were basically like public and COVID, you know, and it was all about like, okay, we just raised some money at that moment. Actually, I think in the beginning of March, we closed around and then we announced that. And then I think the COVID, like, and I think like the service breakers hit like the week after or a few days after or so. It was, the timing was crazy. And then it was obviously first this moment of like, okay, push the brakes, make sure you don't spend the money all like, let's figure out what's going to happen. And then while we were doing all these plans on how to kind of preserve capital, we just saw these cohorts coming in and everyone started to deposit money. And you just, just organically just came in and came in. And we realized everyone was just kind of buying the dip in you know, retail investing. And that was really that, that first moment. And so we very quickly kind of turned that around and were like, wait a minute, instead of now trying to preserve capital, is it maybe actually a chance for us to raise more? And that's when we actually then pretty shortly after we even closed that round, just like went out and just raised some more money so we can even just double down on that. And then throughout that year, obviously, the stock market was like the only sports arena that was still open because sports were off and so on. And so people that were usually, you know, kind of like rallying behind a sports team needed like new kind of sports teams to kind of get behind. And a lot of the times companies kind of became that. And that's why I think throughout 2020, you just had a lot of kind of social interaction, you know, around the markets. I want to talk a little bit about your recent announcement of Alpha, an investing co-pilot that leverages GPT-4. Let's talk a little bit about where public is going and what you're excited about, and then talk a little bit about Alpha. Obviously, like, if I would know where, you know, all the, you know, AI advancements are going, then, uh, you know, I will let you know when we start a hedge fund tomorrow. But, <laughs> but, but, uh, um, uh, but generally speaking, obviously, we find it incredibly fascinating. Also, just the speed that these that that the progress happens right now. At and for us, it's just important that we you know are not just sitting on the sidelines, but that we're actually you know actively try to use and build with these new you know technologies in order to you know again help people be better investors at the end. And so Alpha obviously is like a research assistant. You could you could call it that just makes it really fast 
to access information about companies and markets and get a breakdown on a latest you know, earnings call, for example. And so the way we've even integrated it was that on each stock page, you can just like kind of like swipe down on each stock to then ask any questions about that stock. And just that kind of contextual access we find super, super interesting, right? Like right now, a lot of the kind of AI chat interfaces you see are very like wide and open. You just have a blank box and you start typing. And so these contextual entry points that we can provide there, and by that already kind of giving people a little bit of a guidance of what they might be able to ask about and how they can use this for their own research and so on, we find super interesting. When you think about the future um, of the wallet, and I'm talking five years out, 10 years out, where do you think the future of fintech of uh, personal finance is heading? Obviously, fintech in general as a category is massive. And it's sometimes a little weird that everything gets kind of that like insurance together with investing together with, you know, banking and payments all gets thrown into the same kind of pot is maybe sometimes a little bit too broad, I would even argue. In our space of investing, we talk about how we truly believe there's going to be 300 million people with investing app on the home screen between the US and Europe alone. The closer you get to that reality, the more the markets and all participants around the markets have to adapt to that reality. And so it's not just about you know, everyone being an investor and everyone having their portfolio, but also the effects that it will have on everyone else and everything else once it is the case or the closer we get to that. And so think of it as CNBC right now is likely not a mainstream business publication. It's still likely too specialized and too sophisticated to really be a mainstream you know, outlet. And so likely between that and the TikToker on the other end, which is the other extreme, you know, there's a wide spectrum of how business media will likely have to evolve if you suddenly you know, have everyone being active in the markets to some regard. You know, we have this one project we call Pulse, where we basically help public companies to just like engage with retail investors. Because in the past, that's something that you know, has been a little bit of an afterthought, but the more the retail investor rises in dominance, the more also these companies suddenly have to take them serious and also have to ensure that you know, they hand the same information and the same access to all of their investors as they have to. You know, and that includes retail investors. And so I think the, the closer you get to that reality of all these people being active in the markets, you're going to see a massive shift in the entire space, not just in the specific you know, services that help you invest. You've talked about the importance of focus, um, and you define focus as actual sacrifice, things you cannot do, things you have to give up. Can you coach us, teach us on how you think about focus, how you maintain it, how you create that clarity inside public. I love this definition of focus, right? Which is basically, you know, focus is not about doing the things that you kind of wouldn't do anyway. Focus is about not doing the things that you really would love doing, right? The, the ideas where you feel they would be awesome, they would have a great impact on the business and so on. But you're choosing not to do them, not because they're wrong ideas, not because they couldn't have a great impact, you're only just not doing them because you're focused on something else. I think at public, if there's something I'm personally very proud of, is that um, we have an incredibly high velocity of just output in terms of the amount of work we create at the you know, speed that we created with the small team that we have. It's just incredible and obviously also incredibly fun, but it's just like it's just awesome to see. That also means that specifically ideas, like we're not lacking ideas. Right? There's a lot of awesome ideas and the icebox is 
massive, right? Knowing that you have the superpower of the team that can actually make things really quickly and a lot of it actually makes it incredibly hard to not end up doing too much at the same time. The struggle is not necessarily about the great ideas on how you make them or so on, but it's a struggle is about not making them and not actually pursuing certain things because you're focused on something else. And like just focus-wise, I just love it because it's very easy to find all the arguments of why you really should do something, but it's incredibly hard, despite of all those arguments, to say no in order to stay focused. Whenever you talk about scaling teams, in addition to your sort of thought and uh, you know, maniacal focus, I'll call it, you also have a rule, which is that every manager at public should also be an individual contributor, meaning you also have to touch keys to keyboard, build, work, produce. You can't just manage your people. Give us any of your other people rules. Tell us a bit more about how you think about scaling the team. Company culture has to be about obsession about the work. When you talk about obsession about the work, what comes with that is a law for the craft. And that should not be about obsession about processes or, I don't know, HR review cycles or the cool social event next door or whatever, but the actual obsession about the work. And I think as a manager, you will also, you will get the most respect from the people that report to you if they recognize that you're incredible at your craft. And, you know, and that means likely also, you know, the most inspiring leaders are likely inspiring because they are incredible at their craft. And I think that's just super important. I just, you know, to just be super straightforward, I think there's too many people that think they hire, they move in an organization, and the more people report to them, the less they have to touch the actual work. And I think that is just not true. And that, you know, if like, and that is actually can be detrimental to the company culture, if that's how people think. Tell me any other wild idea or prediction or something that you think could be possible, just given all of the new technical advancements of the last year or two that you see. So not just the like advisor no longer serves a hundred, but could serve a million. What else? Give us one other prediction. Something that we're seeing and we've obviously also actively participating in is the securitization of everything. Basically anything of value can be a tradable asset. And um, right now, obviously, there's a lot of value being locked away in just it not being you know, like liquid enough and not accessible enough, right? So think of real estate, think of you know, even art, right? We find it super interesting to, if we think of public as, you know, public as a name states, that it's a little bit also in our responsibility to define what a public market is, so to say, create nuance, right? And that, I think, is something that's, that's going to be super exciting because also I think you're going to find a lot of people that will start their investing journeys, not by investing into the S&P 500 or whatever, but they will start their investing journey, you know, a collection of sneakers that they might have a way better understanding of the value because they're just deep in sneaker culture than they might have of understanding the value of the S&P 500. The more you get into the securitization of everything, the more doors are going to exist for people to enter the markets where people can just start because they feel more comfortable starting and things that they understand. And I think that's going to be a huge unlock. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Life, I want to transition a little bit to you, which is, you know, you grew up in Germany. If we go back to when you were young, was there something that your parents did in your childhood that when you rewind the clock, 
you think has left a big impact on you that has made you more successful in your role as a serial entrepreneur? My dad had a like a small agency when he's not retired, but he had like a small agency for like human resource marketing or something like literally like the little, you know, job ads you would find in a newspaper, like printed newspaper and stuff like super old school stuff. He taught me this little kind of point of view. Maybe it's a very European point of view, but it's just this little point of view of that. If you run a company, that company is part of society and therefore you uh, have a certain responsibility with that as well. And the one example that I remember that he had back in the day there was he once put basically more of his own money back into the company when it didn't go well for a certain time, just so that he didn't have to fire people that were on his team that he just didn't want to lose, right? With that also recognizing that if you run the company and people also lend their time to you, that you also have a little bit of a responsibility for them as well. And that that company has also just, you know, a place in society, so to say, you have to treat it as such. Life, you're a serial entrepreneur. You've literally started everything from an ad network uh, for PC games in Germany to freelancing software now to a leading breakout social fintech platform. How do you know when an idea is worth pursuing? What does that feel like? I think you don't really know if an idea is good until you really try to make it happen. And you just have to, so it's like as you go down the rabbit hole, you then basically just have to be incredibly disciplined to not fall for your own sunk cost fallacy, so to say, right? Where you feel like you've spent so much time and so much effort and you kind of sold it to yourself now, right? You pitch it to a few people who feel embarrassing if I would now not do it, you know? It's impossible to know if an idea is good until you really start digging in. You were an outsider to fintech when you started. You even said that you wanted public to be closer to pop culture than to traditional finance. How do you think that outsider lens helped you? I think generally speaking, if you're new to something, it's obviously easier to think in first principles and to just like question things, right? Because you're also learning on the job in that moment yourself. And so you just end up being the person that asks why the most. And I think that just opens a lot of lanes potentially, you know, that maybe people who've been in the space for a long time were just not open, right? And it's a little bit this, this just this, this like logical concept of get educated out of creativity, you know, like the more you learn, the more constraints you've, you've kind of consumed and, you know, know about in your life, the, the, the harder it is to be in your free thinking. And I think that it totally applies here, right, in that sense. How do you manage stress? Pay it forward. Very honest, I suck at this. <laughs> so honestly, I love that. Thank you. <laughs> I re- no, seriously, I really suck at it. And like, I know it's, it's one of my weak points, so to say. Like, I take my work home all the time. You know, I should leave my phone on the counter much more often when the kids are around, which I don't do. Um, and, you know, and so on. And like, I, uh, so yeah, so you tell me, I'm not the best person to ask that question at all. I'm loving this so much because I, um, it's just a very honest way to answer. And I'm so grateful that you're being really honest. <laughs> My last question on you is one thing you hold is sacred. So as a founder, as an entrepreneur, there's kind of something in the business that's like a sacred pillar of it. What is it for you for public? 
I think generally speaking, we are all like we're all gonna be in this industry for likely many decades, um, or in your industry, whatever industry you're in, right? And and so with that, it's just like as cheesy as it sounds, but like be kind, be helpful, play the long game. And I think you recognize, you know, Belsky, Scott Belsky, the Adobe guy, right? He's an investor also in public world, but like he has like one of those things in his in like one of he has this book called The Messy Middle and there's this one line in the book that I love, which is the end of every negotiation is the beginning of a relationship. I think as you also just go through business, you know, recognize what you leave behind behind you, often playing the long game, you know, is basically just like karma credits in the world that will come back in some regard in some way and that you will actually be more successful in the long term if you focus on that versus screw over the latest deal as harshly as possible to get your extra next two dollars or so on. I'm going to move to the quick fire round. I'm going to ask you a question. First thing that comes to mind is the answer. What gets you out of bed? Um, a three-year-old. <laughs> Same. Uh, what is a favorite interview question you like to ask people? Tell me something that you would hate in this job. Or like, tell me what, what you would be annoyed by if it would happen in this job, you know, in your first month or so. What is your biggest pinch me moment to date at public? where you like couldn't believe that something went so well? After GameStop happened, we more than doubled the user base in 48 hours. And then we raised $220 million in 10 days. And when those wires actually came in and we were like 40 people at the time or something. And I think Yannick and I looked at each other and we're like, this is fucking nuts. Tell me a book that had a major impact on your life. It can be any type of book, not a business book. It can be any book. Powerful from Petty McCord, who was the first chief talent officer at Netflix. And Jessica was, was the one after her. It's actually on our board now, which is kind of cool. Because when we started public, Yannick and I were giving us this book basically back and forth. We were like, let's read about this because we're just so obsessed with how they thought about company culture. And it was kind of awesome that that's where we started. And then later on, Jessica joined the board. And it was like full circle. It was kind of awesome. If you have to fast forward and think about the number of days people will work in offices, what do you think it'll be? I hope five. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, <laughs> last question. Um, what's one category of innovation that you're most excited about right now? And it can't be AI, something else. Or is there an early startup that you know about or heard about or even have invested in that you are really bullish on? Starlink. I think... Truly having internet available anywhere in the, like having true high-speed internet available anywhere in the world, and even knowing that real high-speed internet even is not even present throughout the entire US, which is really effing bad, I think that is going to create so much opportunity we don't even know yet. And is there a startup you want to give a shout out to? Shout out to Formation, who is uh, formation.dev. They're basically, uh, it's one of my angel investments, but they're basically helping engineers to keep developing their craft and then helping them also place them in large tech companies to then, you know, obviously also make more money for them and so on. But I think it's a, it's a phenomenal service that they're providing. Life, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody out there, if you haven't already, please check out public.com or download the app. 
become a user. It's incredible. And you can join us next week for Ink the Founders Project with Alex Bontobel. Life, you are really moral, sound leader in a way that I'm so grateful for. And just, we couldn't be rooting for you more. And we feel like we're in really good hands. And just congratulations on such tremendous success in four years. It really is just, it's rare and it's incredible. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.